As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Zimbabwe, there's a shocking rise in the number of young girls dropping out of school. A lot of it has to do with teen pregnancy and attitudes about it. We ask how to address a problem that has legal, societal, and economic causes. And if you've ever wondered what happens to pigs after they fight, or more likely, if like most people you haven't, we'll tell you, they make up. It's yet another sign of these muddy creatures' surprisingly high intelligence. First up, though. The story behind some big news from this weekend is starting to trickle out. There was, it seems, a boardroom revolt at one of the biggest names in entertainment. Also just a stunning development in the business world overnight. Bob Iger is back at the top of Disney just two years after retiring from a legendary run. He replaces his own successor, Bob Chapek. Out with Bob Chapek and in with another Bob, one who's already had a stellar 15-year stint at the top of the House of Mouse. If you look at today's media landscape, and whether you're in the UK or the United States or in many other places in the world, first of all, it starts with content. Content is king. And then secondly, get content. It's clear why executives wanted the Bob swap. The company's share price has slumped by more than 40% this year. But such troubles might be a question not of leadership, but of how people are watching. That kind of shift in the means of entertainment has always troubled Disney bosses, even Walt himself. Television uh, can be competition, yes. In other words, it's a, it's a medium that can keep people in their homes instead of uh, get them out. But uh, again, if you have the right kind of films, the people go out. Walt Disney Productions and then Walt Disney Pictures did just fine, of course, not least under Mr. Iger's first tenure. But these days, it seems a bit hopeful to ask him to step in the same stream twice. In Hollywood terms, Disney have just changed their leading man. But I think the trouble is that problems still remain with the script. In other words, the strategy at Disney and really across the movie industry. Tom Wainwright is our technology and media editor. This is a business that in recent years has been turned upside down by the streaming business. And I think changing the chief executive at Disney may help them a bit, but there are big, big problems across this whole industry, which will remain no matter who's in charge. So what have Disney's fortunes recently been like? Disney's had a tough time this year. There's no doubt about that. I mean, during the pandemic, users of its Disney Plus streaming platform grew very quickly. But this year, there's been a bit of a rethink among a lot of investors who've come to see that the streaming business actually in the long run is unlikely to be as profitable as they'd hoped. 
Bob Chapek was in the firing line for this. And about a year ago, there was a lot of speculation that his contract might not be renewed. In the end, it was renewed. And so it seemed that he was safe. But it seems that a series of blunders this year, some very disappointing quarterly results just a couple of weeks ago, that seems to have been enough for Disney to decide to pull the trigger and, to everybody's surprise, bring back Bob Iger, who was the chief executive who previously served for 15 years. So what in their eyes has Mr. Chapek done wrong? He's had a difficult time because he began at the beginning of 2020, which of course was just when the pandemic was taking off. Obviously, the pandemic has affected the speed with which we're looking at things. Uh, but I will tell you that this move that we made today would be happening with or without pandemic. Uh, we want consumers to have more choices. That we, we want them to steer the ship in terms of options. And that was difficult for Disney and all of Hollywood. It meant that all the cinemas were closed down. It meant that Disney's theme parks were shut. But he's made a few unforced errors as well. I mean, he had a big falling out with a lot of the talent that Disney relies on, meaning the actors and actresses, scriptwriters, often slightly highly strung people who make the movie business really work. He annoyed Scarlett Johansson by moving one of her film straight to streaming without compensating her enough in her view. The star of the Marvel superhero film Black Widow is suing the Walt Disney the hardened Company. Hollywood star is now seeking to avenge a breach of contract, taking on the might of the Walt Disney Company. And then he mishandled some of the politics as well. There was a case when in Florida, which is an important place for Disney because it's where Disney World is based, Florida passed this bill, the Don't Say Gay law, which was seen as a homophobic piece of legislation. And Disney really mishandled its response to this. It initially said that it wasn't going to get involved. A lot of people then said, actually, it should. And so it did a U-turn and said, actually, it would get involved and oppose this. And this just had the effect of infuriating all the people on the other side. And so there was this big bust up with the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who was highly critical of Disney's approach. For Disney to come out and put a statement and say, that the bill should have never passed and that they are going to actively work to repeal it, I think one was fundamentally dishonest, but two, I think that crossed the line. This state is And I think overall people are just a bit less impressed by Chapek than they were with Iger. Iger was this incredibly smooth, successful guy who ran the company for 15 very successful years. And Chapek, by comparison, just seems kind of clunky. You know, his handling of this earnings call the other week was very widely criticised. It took everybody by surprise. He hadn't done an effective job at preparing the ground for what were a pretty bad set of results. People just kind of began to miss the guy who had come before him. Well, exactly. I guess his previous successes make him a better bet than some new talent altogether. He's got a record that you can't argue with. He was the one who bought the Star Wars properties on board, got the Marvel properties on board, and really transformed Disney into the successful machine that it is now. And I think he probably will keep people happy to start with. We've already seen that Disney's stock has gone up a bit since this announcement was made on Sunday night. But I think that people who think that the change of chief exec can really change Disney's fortunes are really misunderstanding the kind of nature of the problem here. This isn't just a temporary question of leadership at the top of Disney. This is something that really concerns a big long-term change in the whole economics of how Hollywood works. Hollywood has moved gradually from this model where it used to rely on theatrical release and cinemas and then cable revenues to a streaming system which has undermined cinematic releases and is also 
seeing people cut the cord from cable. And the trouble is that the streaming business is turning out to be much, much less profitable than those two businesses were. And it's not just that. At the same time, Hollywood is now having to contend with new rivals, including Apple and Amazon, these tech companies which have budgets which, uh, by Hollywood standards, are just unheard of. They've got almost unlimited spending to slosh around on content. So it's just a much, much harder business than it used to be. And that's going to be a challenge for Bob Iger just as much as it was for Bob Chapek. And presumably just as much a challenge for other of these legacy companies. Yeah, more so. I mean, if you think Disney's got problems, then look at some of its rivals. In these streaming wars, I think Disney's actually done a pretty good job of making sure that it will be one of the survivors. So you're ultimately going to be left with probably Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Disney, and maybe one other. And so to have got into that kind of group of survivors is an achievement. I think the ones to really be concerned about are the smaller ones. Welcome to Paramount Plus, a brand new streaming service. Who are you after? I think Paramount is probably not going to survive in its current form. Peacock, which is the streamer from NBC Universal, is probably not going to stick around for that much longer. They may even be eaten up by Disney, some people think. Warner Discovery is a pretty successful legacy studio, but even they said the other day on an earnings call that they were finding things much, much tougher going than they had expected. So it's not just Disney by any means. I think the problems that Disney is facing really are being experienced arguably to an even greater extent by many of its rivals. So more changes at the top, if not at Disney, than than elsewhere. It wouldn't surprise me if Bob Chapek is not the last chief executive of a big media company to bite the dust this year. Everybody's finding it really difficult. And I would only counsel that people are mistaken if they think that changing the leading man or the leading lady is going to turn a kind of turkey into a blockbuster because really there are fundamental things that have changed for the worse in terms of the economics of how movies are made and those things aren't going away anytime soon. And if those changes are bad for the studios, are they good for the consumer, do you think? I think on the whole, this is good for the consumer, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that the Hollywood studios are finding this so difficult is that consumers are able to chop and change much more easily. The old model with cable was that you'd get someone as a customer and then you'd probably have them forever. And with streaming, the hope that these companies had was that they could spend a lot of money on content, get people to sign up, and then gradually things would eventually become less competitive and they could spend a bit less on content and improve their profit margins. What they're finding actually is that a lot of consumers are doing the trick that we're all familiar with, which is where you sign up for, let's say, Netflix because you want to see the new season of The Crown. You watch it and then you quit and you maybe then sign up for Disney because you want to see the new Star Wars spin-off and you watch it and then you quit again. And the trouble with this for the studios is that it means they need to keep on spending. And when you've got companies like Apple and Amazon in the picture, which really have the money to go on spending as long as they like, it's hard to see how a company like Disney or Netflix is ever going to make the kind of money out of streaming that it used to make out of cable. And they'll continue, they'll be viable businesses, they'll make money, but it's not going to be the profitable business that cable used to be. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, 
this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Teen mothers in Zimbabwe struggle more than those in other countries to get an education. The country's unhelpful laws are changing, but young women still battle on more than one front to stay in school, as Amy Hawkins, one of our news editors, found out. So one of the stories I came across while investigating this piece was that of Brilliant and Delovu, and she was a young woman in Zimbabwe who's never really known any kind of childhood. And that's because since the age of seven, she's headed her household in Chilotcho, which is a town in the rural west of Zimbabwe because her parents went to work abroad. So she's been taking on a lot of responsibility from a young age. As the oldest of five children, she scraped a living growing crops together while trying to keep up with schoolwork, which was hard enough as it is. But then in 2020, after COVID-19 struck and there'd also been a devastating drought in Zimbabwe, farmers couldn't afford to pay child labourers like Brilliant. And so she told me that she looked for a man to help support her family. And she found one, but he demanded sex in exchange for money. And so, unsurprisingly, at the age of 17, she got pregnant. And after that, they just couldn't afford to keep her in school and she dropped out. And how common a story is brilliant? Stories like hers are actually depressingly common and that's because the most recent numbers show that teen pregnancies in Zimbabwe, as with many other places, rose during the COVID lockdown. And the number of pregnancy-related dropouts from school is increasing. In 2021, nearly 6,000 young mothers dropped out of school. And actually, the true number may be higher because government estimates don't always capture the true number. Well, what is the government trying to do about it? The government is taking small steps to try and help teen mothers stay in school. So in August 2020, the government amended the Education Act to prohibit schools from expelling girls for falling pregnant, which is what they'd been doing previously. And in doing so, Zimbabwe joined a growing club of African countries, letting pregnant teenagers continue with their education. But the social norms are much more strong than this minor amendment. And that's because a third of Zimbabwean women marry before they're 18. And there is a lot of social stigma around staying in school after you fall pregnant. Previously, the Zimbabwe education minister described student pregnancy as a misdemeanor of a serious nature, which should be punishable by expulsion, which kind of indicates what some of the social attitudes around pregnant schoolgirls are. And so campaigners argue that changing the law didn't really make any difference. In 2020, around 3,000 girls dropped out of school for being pregnant. But with the most recent number, nearly 6,000 girls, the trend seems to be continuing. But you say it's not so much about the law as it is about the stigma. Yeah, stigma is a really big element. So one NGO called The Girls' Table told me that when girls fall pregnant, their families often don't accept that they can excel. And so most girls drop out of school before teachers even know they're pregnant and have a chance to expel them. And there are also financial concerns. So families will often not see the point of sending a girl to school if she's pregnant if they're already struggling to pay her school fees. And those who do continue with their education often experience bullying. So some of the girls I spoke to complain that boys tease them, saying they smell of milk. And so all the odds are really stacked against them staying in school, regardless of what the law says. Yeah, not just the law and not just the stigma, but also the economics of it. Yeah, exactly. The average rural household in Zimbabwe spends about $3.23 a month on education. 
And for Zimbabweans living below the poverty line, that's a big chunk of their income. So, for example, another girl I spoke to called Happiness, she became pregnant when she was 15 and she told her parents, I'm not stopping school. And they were initially quite supportive, but she failed her exams a month after giving birth, unsurprisingly, and they didn't have enough money to pay for her to resit them. So she lost the chance to gain a school leaving certificate, which would have qualified her for university. So it seems that these girls are subject to a confluence of, of really tricky effects here. Like you can change the law, but it's, it's very hard to change social stigma, to change the economic outlook for a lot of these girls. What do you think is to be done? Yeah, so what I learned while reporting this piece was that basically pregnant girls are often the first to lose out and school can be a really hostile place for them. So social stigma and cost are a lot greater barriers to pregnant girls staying in school than the law. And so while it's good that the government amended the law to ban the expulsion of pregnant girls, it's just a first step and a lot more support is needed for them. One thing that some of the community leaders I spoke to you mentioned was the influence of religious groups and religious leaders. And so some religions in Zimbabwe really encourage child marriage. And that's a big problem in itself. So I think a lot of people working on this think the power really lies with community leaders and religious leaders rather than the government to encourage people to change social attitudes. Amy, thanks very much for your time. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Pigs. We know them best for their insatiable appetites and their love of mud. But to scientists and keepers alike, pigs are also known for their remarkable intelligence. They seem to understand how mirrors work in relation to the space around them. They're quick studies and have proved capable of learning a wide array of tricks, from jumping hoops and herding sheep to playing video games with joysticks. And like all supposedly intelligent animals, they have altercations. Now, researchers from the University of Turin have examined what happens after pigs fall out with each other. Pigs, like all animals, they sometimes fight, but they also make up. Abby Bertix writes about science and technology for The Economist. And recently, a study was conducted to look into how exactly pigs go about reconciling after fights, how they make up. Okay, and before we get to how they make up, let's talk about the fights. What does a pig fight look like and why do they fight? So pigs do live in a dominant social hierarchy, mainly depending on their weight. So the more corpulent pigs are generally at the top of the hierarchy and sometimes they have to assert their dominance and maintain hierarchy this fight might involve a kick, a push. They might lift up the other pig. Sometimes they shove into each other. Sometimes they even lift each other up. But it's generally a pretty short scuffle lasting seconds. And the scientist that I talked to said that the longest pig fights would last maybe a minute or two. And how does the fight resolve? So after the fight is over, the pigs kind of go their separate ways. But what is actually pretty interesting and surprising is that often the two pigs, the victim and the aggressor, will reconcile. They'll make up on their own. This might look like a nose-to-nose touch or some sort of like gentle gesture. Maybe they're sitting next to each other in close proximity without any sort of violence. 
And something that was interesting that the scientists found in this study was that pigs that are not closely related are more likely to spontaneously reconcile than those that are really closely related. And I mean, this kind of is similar to humans as well. Like if you're fighting with somebody who is not your sibling, it's really more important to set things straight. And with your sibling, you can kind of just ask them what's for dinner later and not really directly reconcile the conflict. And sometimes if the conflict doesn't spontaneously reconcile, there will even be third-party bystander pigs that will step in and calm things down afterwards. And Abby, what does it look like when a third party gets involved? So the fight's over because there's generally not enough time to intervene during a few-second-long fight. And the victim and the aggressor are kind of walking away from each other. It might be a few seconds. It might even be a minute. And then a third pig will sidle up next to either the victim or the aggressor. They might touch noses. They might just sit next to each other, provide comfort. But it's a clear show of solidarity, a clear interaction that occurs between this bystander and either the victim or the aggressor. So this might be similar to if you see two friends fighting, they're going at it. Generally, I'm thinking like a, a verbal spar rather than a physical one. But afterwards, like as a human, you feel an intense pressure to go over to the victim, make sure they're okay, check in with them, engage with them. And in a sense, this is what the bystander pigs are doing as well. And bystander intervention is extremely effective. So if the bystander pig spontaneously, like of their own volition, approaches the aggressor, it turns out that it significantly reduces the amount of aggression that happens after the conflict. And when the bystander approaches the victim, it reduces anxious behaviors like shaking or scratching. And what was doubly interesting was that when the anxious victim after this conflict when they approached the third-party bystander for comfort, their anxiety didn't really reduce at all. The anxiety only reduced when they were approached spontaneously by a third-party bystander. And this is actually a really unique phenomenon in animal literature. It's called consolation, when a third party comes in and consoles a victim. It's really remarkable. Do any other animals behave like this? So, of course, humans do, as well as other primates. There's evidence for some dogs and crows as well. Elephants, whales, parrots, and some rodents are suspected of it. But it's a surprisingly rare behavior that's limited to only very intelligent species. And it's really a high sign of intelligence. So tell us more about that. Why is this a sign of high intelligence? So it requires a certain level of social intelligence. If you're the third-party bystander, you have to be looking at this fight. You have to realize that the victim has an emotional state that is different from your own emotional state. And you have to realize that by intervening, by stepping in, you're able to alter their emotional conscious state for the better. All right. Abby, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow. 
As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit Moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.